0: Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church and we're coming near the end of our series on the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 20 and we're looking at the end of all things. The thousand year reign of Christ is now finished and now it's time for final judgments and final destinies. And there are two final destinies. Either the new Jerusalem in heaven that we're going to see next time. The But also, that's the destiny of the righteous, but also the lake of fire is the final destiny of Satan and his angels and those who choose to follow him, the unrighteous. Let's start reading in Revelation 20 verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the fit beast and false prophet are, and they'll be tormented or punished day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. This present universe will now be dissolved, and all that will be there is the great white throne. The believers will be in the new Jerusalem in heaven, but now it says... The, the present heaven and earth fled away. There's no, found no place for them, so that has disappeared. And now what we have now is the unbelievers, who are called the dead, small and great, standing before God. So they're resurrected, but they are called the dead. They're spiritually dead. And now they, unbelievers, are going to be judged. And it says books were opened, and that's the book of their lives, are going to be open for inspection. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And so although they've already been found guilty, they um, are going to be judged by the works that are recorded in their books, how they have rejected God. That will determine their final sentencing and their final level of punishment um, in the uh, lake of fire. It says the sea gave up the dead who are in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who are in them. And so, their bodies were might be at, even be at sea. Um, death, wherever they are, there's no escape. They're going to have to stand before the great white throne. Their souls are going to be taken out of Hades, and they were bodies and souls are alike. Relic- are reunited. So death releases their bodies, Hades releases their souls, they're reunited, they stand before the great white throne, and they are judged each according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, this is the final death, separation from God. And anyone not found in the book of life was, found, was cast in the lake of fire. And So if you're not written in the book of life, of the Lamb, if you haven't received Christ, by the end of your life, then you are, as it were, deleted from the book of life. You're not in God's family album. And it says, anyone not found written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. Well, the lake of fire is the final state and destiny of the lost. It's called the second death, eternal separation from the goodness of God, the life of God, the presence of God. Although, although believers only die once, unbelievers will be raised and then suffer this second eternal death. It's a place of eternal conscious punishment. You know, in Matthew 24, the same word everlasting is used for the everlasting punishment of the wicked as for the everlasting life of believers. Jesus often warned of the lake of fire. He used the Greek word Gehenna after the Hebrew word for the valley of Hinnom which was the rubbish dump of Jerusalem at the south end of Jerusalem and it had continual fires burning the rubbish and, and rotting carcasses and uh, when we use the word hell in English it's a bit confusing because it could mean to one you know people usually think of hell as the lake of fire but the King James unfortunately also uses that same word hell to translate Hades Um, or Sheol, which is the Hebrew word, and that's the place where unbelieving souls go after death. And Hades is a place of punishment just for souls, but it's the temporary place. When they're resurrected, they are then thrown in the lake of fire, that's Gehenna, and that is the real hell, the final hell, you might say, the lake of fire, where body and soul, the whole man, is under punishment. So Hades is a place of punishment for the soul, but Gehenna is for the soul and the body. And Jesus warned that God is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. And so the lake of fire is Gehenna. And uh, this is uh, the rubbish dump. And in a sense, the lake of fire is God's rubbish tip for those who refuse to be resalvaged and recycled, as it were. Because we're fallen, we're in a mess, but we've got to let God recycle us, make us right again. And so the fires of that rubbish tip and, uh, and, the, the rot- and the rotting carcasses is a picture of those who are in hell under fire, fiery judgment. Well, there are degrees of punishment in the lake of fire because there are greater and lesser sins. Jesus said the sin of uh, Judas was worse than the sin of Pilate. And there will be different levels of punishment and pain in hell, depending on how much a man has rejected and rebelled against God. Those who reject Christ, who had more light and who knew more about him and had a greater opportunity to respond, they will suffer a greater punishment because their rejection was greater. How this works in practice can be seen from the fact that no sinning will be allowed in hell, in the lake of fire. No sin will be committed in eternity, because the Bible says every knee must bow to Christ. Everyone will be held under submission to Christ. Every enemy will be defeated, it says, including the enemy of sin. It will be subdued. So everything will be brought under God's dominion. So, although beings will still have their sin nature, they won't be able to express their sin. So everyone will be held at the level of pain necessary to restrain the expression of their rebellious sin nature, and that governs the degree of punishment. Even Satan will be forced to bow the knee. He won't be able to sin, and so he will need a very high level of pain to restrain him. So people who think they are going to be parties in hell, they can do what they want, no. They will be in solitary confinement under great pain. And so that's why Jesus talked about sin as a place of salting, because salt restrains corruption. Uh, They didn't have deep freezers in those days. They used salt to stop the corruption, to stop decay on their meat. And we'll see this in a minute, because Jesus warned more strongly than anyone about the punishment of body and soul in Gehenna. Um, in the strongest possible terms, in, in Mark chapter nine. He says, "If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, it's better for you to enter into life maimed than have two hands and have two hands, rather than having two hands, and go to Gehenna, into the fire that will never be quenched, where their worm does not die. Now that's the inner soul torment of regret and remorse. That's the that's punishment of the soul. And their fire is not quenched. And that's the outer physical punishment of fire. He says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into Gehenna, hell, into the fire that will never be quenched, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And that's a phrase taken from Isaiah 66. 24. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna fire, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So this repeating line from Isaiah about the inner remorse, eating away within like a worm, eating a carcass, and the outer fire continually burning is confirming that people will be conscious in the lake of fire. And then he warns the unbelievers, he says, everyone will be salted with fire, as every sacrifice is seasoned with salt. In other words, he's he's warning about the fire of hell, that it will act like salt, restraining corruption. In other words, the fire of hell will stop them sinning. He says, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another, one way or the other, in other words, God will stop you sinning. You either receive his salt, his restraining grace, within you, or otherwise he'll salt you by fire, by the fire of hell. Either way, he's going to stop you sinning. So you can either have salt within yourself and be constrained by the grace of God, or you can be salted externally by hell fire. So receive God's grace within you to stop your sin so he doesn't have to salt you with fire. Salt is the word of God, the grace of God. Have salt within yourselves. The life of God within you will overcome the sin. And then he says, then we'll be salty to others, we'll be a witness to others. So he was telling his believers to walk in God's love and grace and be at peace with one another and be a good witness. And so... Sodom is an example, actually, of how God uh, judge, judges the world by fire and salt. They, the fire and brimstone that burnt the cities, but also he salted the whole area, which was why Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt. She was just covered by that salt. That salt is, stops the sin. Uh, and so everyone will be salted with fire. The wicked will be salted like Lot's wife and they will suffer fire and brimstone like Sodom. So receive the grace of God into your heart so that you love God freely rather than being forced, submit to God freely rather than being forced to bow the knee at the, at the end of time. Well God will no longer permit sin. He will restrain all sin in hell. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Even Satan will be forced into submission. And so either choose to submit to God now or by pain be forced into submission for all eternity. God will not allow any rebellion in his universe. You know, God could force us to obey now by just giving us pain when we think about sinning. But he doesn't want to control us that way. He wants us to choose the right to receive his love and grace on the inside, to choose to live for him. But in the lake of fire, they won't have that choice. They will be at the pain level to stop them sinning. And that's why there are different degrees of torment in hell The more sinful a person is, the more they have reject God in their life, the greater the pain will be necessary to restrain their sin. So I hope I'm scaring you about the thought of hell. You need to be in heaven rather than hell. Yes, it's hard, these things. But in the end, God will be shown to be absolutely fair and just in his judgments. At the moment, the lake of fire exists, but it's empty, but the occupants of the lake of fire will certainly be Satan and his fallen angels, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Judas will be there, according to Acts. Uh, All the unsaved will be there. In fact, it says anyone not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So how urgent is it that you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, it says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Make sure you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. When we think about these things, it's so important, isn't it? and that we give a good witness to people so they don't have to suffer that eternal damnation. Well, God's kingdom advances greatly in the millennium. Jesus, the God-man, becomes king over the earth, but some of his enemies are still present. It's, It's not absolute perfection, and his purpose at the end of those thousand years is to destroy all those enemies in preparation for the eternal state. And we've seen that. His enemies have now been removed into the lake of fire. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And that happens when all the dead have been resurrected. And now, finally, the kingdom can move into its final phase, which is the eternal state. And 1 Corinthians 15 describes the transition of the kingdom into the eternal state at the end of time. It says, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, the end of time, when the unbelievers are resurrected. It says, then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So it's the end of the mediatorial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Christ now submits the kingdom to the Father because it's going to move into a new phase. Christ has been the visible ruler in the thousand-year reign of Christ, but now he delivers the kingdom to the Father when Christ shall have put down all rule, authority, and power. He'll, he'll have destroyed all the enemies now. For Christ must reign, that's in his messianic kingdom, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, it says, he that's the Father, God, has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he, that's God the Father, who put all things under him is is accepted. So now when all things are made subject to him, the Son, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so this is what happens at the end of the thousand years. When every enemy has been defeated by Christ, he brings this mediatorial phase of the kingdom, where he reigns on earth under the Father, on behalf of the Father, he brings it to an end by presenting it now to God, having fulfilled its purpose. The day of the Lord will then end, and the day of God begins. He does this so that the kingdom can now enter into its next and final phase, Perfect phase, which is the eternal state, where Christ he still reigns because he is it says he has an everlasting kingdom, he still reigns as king. But in this case, God the Father is all in all. So, the throne of God the Father in heaven and the throne of Christ on earth they are now merged into one, that separation is removed, and now they are now reign. They're both on that one throne. And that's made possible in the new universe because we're going to see that the new Jerusalem where God's throne is comes down from heaven onto the new earth and so God will live among men on earth for all eternity. And we read in Revelation 22 uh, that in the eternal state it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so there's just a change in the authority structure a bit, whereby now the Father and the Son rule together. Heaven and earth come together. There's not two thrones anymore, one on earth, one in heaven, as in the Messianic kingdom, but Christ delivers up his earthly throne to the Father so that he sits with the Father on his throne, and they rule together over all things forever. And so that it's from the, the son sits with the father on his throne. And this is the perfect eternal state. This kingdom, which existed in time, is now merged into the eternal kingdom of God. So, now we are into the eternal state. The day of God, and that's described in Revelation 21 and 22. And in this present universe, the purpose of this present time is that the issue of sin, the rebellion against the creator, has been manifest and by the end of it, it the issue of sin will have been dealt with forever. The enemies will be dealt with forever. And so the eternal state is total perfection, where righteousness dwells forever. God's Ultimate purpose is fulfilled. God and man is united together forever. the bridegroom and the bride. The Old Testament prophets, they didn't see beyond the golden age, the messianic kingdom. You know, they, they saw that Christ would reign forever, but they, they didn't really see beyond into eternity. And perhaps only Isaiah did, because Isaiah says twice, "Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former will not be remembered or come to mind." And again, he says, as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, shall remain before me forever, says the Lord, so your descendants shall remain. So, in other words, Isaiah has two little glimpses into the eternal state. But our main source of information is these last two chapters of the book of Revelation. So, let's go there now to Revelation 21. He says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Now, there'll be waters, there'll be lakes, but there is no more oceans. Um, oceans are a sign of judgment. They're the result of Noah's flood. And and we need the large salty oceans to deal and soak up the corruption that's on the earth. So, as it were, God bathed this planet in death because of sin, but that will not be necessary anymore in the eternal state. This new heaven on earth is in 2 Peter as well. It says that we we look for... A, the coming of the day of God when the old heavens will be dissolved by fire and then it says we nevertheless look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our eternal state. And then Revelation 21 continues, then I John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bridegroom for her husband, adorned for her husband. And so this new Jerusalem, you see, which is already existence in the third heaven, comes down onto the new earth. So heaven and earth are now united. And we will dwell in this new Jerusalem on earth forever. This city is likened to a bride. It's called a bride because it's beautiful, sparkling, glorious. But also the city is a bride because a city is actually not so much its buildings, a city is its inhabitants. And this city is the dwelling place of the glorified bride of Christ. And she's adorned for her husband, Christ, who will dwell with her forever in this city. This city already exists. And believers are actually, who've died, are, are there already. And we belong in this city. It says, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Remember what Jesus said when he went to prepare a place for us? He's talking as a bridegroom to his bride. And he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for us where we'll live together forever. He said that, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, again in the New Jerusalem, are many mansions. If it were not so, I'd have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And He says, if I do that, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you will there you will be also. In other words, those are romantic words saying, we will live together in this place forever. It's also the eternal home of the Old Testament saints, like Abraham, um, because it talks about that Abraham waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So that's why he was willing to live in tents, because his eyes were on that future city. It says they died in faith, not having received the promises, but they saw them afar off. And uh, it says that they desired a better place, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the Old Testament saints had the promise of this city of God, the New Jerusalem. So although God promised the earthly land to Israel as a nation, Uh, God's promise to individual saints was to be resurrected and to live in the New Jerusalem as their eternal home, just like Abraham. Well, Hebrews 12 describes this city as the eternal home of all the redeemed. It says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels. So there's loads of angels there. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn registered in heaven. That's the church is there. To God, the judge of all. To the spirits of just men made perfect. Those are the Old Testament saints because they were righteous by faith, but they weren't born again. But when Christ raised from the dead, he actually They were made born again their spirits were made perfect and he took them up to heaven so the old testament saints are in heaven to jesus the mediator of the new covenant and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of abel and so the new jerusalem is the eternal home of all the saints uh, the resurrected saints and so even at the start of the millennium we will have entered into our eternal personal eternal state so we will be in our resurrected bodies, in our, and our home is the new Jerusalem. In a sense, we're already in our eternal state. And then after the thousand years, all creation enters the eternal states. As we read on, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, sorrow or crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And so in eternity we will have endless fellowship with God. All sin and curse will be gone and forgotten forever. And he says, right, for these words are true and faithful. And he, Christ said to me, it is done, it's accomplished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. God's plan has now been brought to completion. And then Christ says, I will give of the fountain, of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the ultimate promise. And this is God's offer of salvation by grace to all people. To drink of the water of life freely, eternal life in the heavenly Jerusalem, to be God's son forever. This is the offer of salvation to everyone. Anyone who wants to can be part of this eternal joy that's being described. But there, along with the gospel, is a warning that's now given in the next two verses. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You have a choice to make, will you? Because on our own, without Christ, we are all of those things. But... If we accept Christ, he changes our inward nature. We are born again. We become his children. This is, we're not saved by our works. But those who don't believe are marked by those sins. It's part of their nature. But when we trust in Christ our Lord, he changes us on the inside and our lives begin to show this new nature by our changed lives. Well, next time we're going to conclude our study of the book of Revelation in Revelation 21 and 22 and see what wonderful things God has in store for us for all eternity. My series on the book of Revelation, which goes right from the beginning all the way through to the end, verse by verse, was actually 29 messages in all of half an hour. And we've had requests that... uh, people can have the whole series together. So we've put these series on seven DVDs and you'll get all 29 episodes on seven DVDs. And it will be 70 pounds and you will have all of those teachings together on that DVD series, which you can use to to show in, in home groups and in different contexts. So let me encourage you to get the whole series. Thank you for watching. You can watch more of our teachings on our Oxford Bible Church Roku channel and Derek Walker YouTube channel. You're most welcome to join us at our church services which are every Sunday at 11am and 6pm at Cheney School, Headington, Oxford, OX3 7QH. You can order CDs, DVDs, books and other great products from our online shop at www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk or by calling 01865 515 086